Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. La, 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 la. Inner Wealth Podcast. La, 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 la. Inner Wealth Podcast. La, 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 la. Inner Wealth Podcast. You know what day it is. Inner Wealth Podcast. Meditate and give. So manifest the greater this. And things all good, because I say it is. Investing in the wealth, real generational wealth is mental health. It's an inside game, no toxicity. Let's talk and more listening. Ladies and gentlemen, and now introducing David McCullough, founder of Inception, the first mental health gym. Inner Wealth Podcast. Inner Wealth Podcast. Inner Wealth Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Inner Wealth Podcast. I got two special guests in the building. I got my mom, COO, and uh, co-founder of Inception. And I have also this very special guest that flew in from Atlanta today. I got the ambassador of hope, Mr. Andre Norman. What up, though? Ah, oh, man, life is good, man. It's good to be back in Detroit. Yeah. It's always great to see moms. <laughs> How did you get the name uh, Ambassador of Hope? I got the name Ambassador of Hope because I show up to help people. Mm. I physically show up. And I guess that's what ambassadors do. They leave their home country, and they go to another country, and they show up. And so I would show up, and I used to travel. So I've been mm. uh, over 30 countries. I've been to West Africa. I've been to Saudi Arabia. I've been to Guatemala. I've been to Honduras. been to Spain, I've been to Germany, I've been to Italy, and I'm pulling up in these different countries. Mm. And since I'm coming from America, somebody said, yo, he's an ambassador. Because mm. that's how the people saw me. Right. And that just became, I'm bringing hope. So I became the ambassador of hope for all the international travel. But you're bringing a specific type of hope. And so what population are you bringing mainly hope to? I mean, I specialize in people in prison mm. because that's where I come from. That's my go-to. That's my forte. That's what I can do in my sleep, and I can do it to the day I die. I started out helping black boys and black men. Mm. And I helped black boys and black men because it was where I felt most comfortable. Then over time, when I came home from prison, even before I came home, I started helping um, girls. I never worked with girls before, but mm. they didn't have a lot of people trying to work with them. I started working with women in prison. I started working with Latinos. I started working with white folks. And I came to realize Everybody has problems, and most of them are similar, even though they live in different ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So I just came to a place where I said, I help people. Mm. So I have a specialty, yes, mm -hmm. but I help people. Yeah. And so you've been to these countries. Um, what is it like? And You've been to the jail systems in these countries? Some too? of them. I've been to jails. In Honduras, I've been to prison. In um, Jamaica, I went to the prison. In Bahamas, I went to the prison. So a lot of countries, I go to the prisons. I go to substance abuse centers. Mm. Um, I go to the court systems. I train police. And so I work a variety of different places, depending on the country. So what's your main training that you're doing with, with this population? The main training I do is there's a saying that you can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped. 
That is like, I hear that you can't help someone doesn't want to be helped, and they don't want help. And I say that's a lie, and I say that it's wrong. There's just a step before that, and it's getting them ready to want help. And that's why I come in. Mm. I specialize in buy-in. I'm not the guy who runs your program for three years. I'm not the guy who sits with you for three years. I'm the guy who pulls you off the ledge. Mm. I'm the guy that gets you to put the gun down. I'm the guy that says, you know something? Here's your reason for living. Mm. Then I turn them over to whatever the agency or people are to do the long-term care. I'm the crisis guy. Mm. So I come in and do the crisis component. So how do you develop that skill set to be able to to, to do that? Because that is a skill set because we have a lot of people and we talk about this all the time, what you just said, you know, uh, people who are not ready, really, you know. So you're like you're helping people to get ready to begin doing some type of work, correct? So how did you how did you develop that that skill set to be able to do that? My fir- life experience first. Um, there's a thing in a saying called evidence-based practices. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say I don't believe in evidence-based practices, but what's evidence-based in Michigan might not work in Florida because it's a different demographic, it's a different mindset, it's a different culture, but it's similar problems, but the people aren't similar. Mm-hmm. So I came up with a concept called experience-based practices. The experiences are the experiences. It doesn't really matter where you've been. And my first teacher was my life experience. Mm-hmm. And my first teacher in life was my mom. When I grew up in my house, I had this conversation just yesterday. My mom is so intelligent, it's not funny. She's, she's sarcastic. She's funny. She's aggressive. She's assertive. She's listening. She listen, all those things. So I grew up in a house with this woman, and just because I'm in her house, this is what I learned. I thought all adults were like my mom. Mm. So when I came out of the house and I met somebody else, I just my mother would catch me doing something on Monday. It might not say something for a month. The next month, she's like, oh, yeah, boy, I let you get away with that last month. You thought because you got away with that last month that you got away with something. Stop it. I'm like, I could probably get away with that. Mm-hmm. And she played so many mind games mm-hmm. that it taught me to play mind games. And I had to think, did I really get away? And how mm-hmm. do I really be sure that I really got away? Because she didn't say anything wasn't mean you got away. Right. right. So I had to learn, did I really get away with it? Which was just mental gymnastics in the house. Mm-hmm. Extreme mental gymnastics. And mom had... Mental games, and she came at you every single day in a positive and a loving way, but challenging. You just had to think to be around my mom. My mom doesn't do nitwits. Uh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you you get eaten alive in my house if you're on some dumb status. So yeah, I have friends who used to come over our house and used to watch us like debate, and they would just stand in the corner and be like, "These people are crazy." <laughs> it was like mm. walking into like a full fledged college debate on everything, and so I learned a lot. I, I tell people, I'm my mother reborn. If mm. you've met me, you met my mom. Mm. We literally, I used to call him from prison. I might be talking to you on the phone, and we'd call my mom on a three-way. And she would say verbatim some of the things that I said to you 10 minutes prior with no, with no leading. Wow. So I got my gifts and my personality and who I am directly from her, good, bad, and indifferent. So with that, with that, that mother and somebody you couldn't get away with stuff, right? You couldn't get away with things. Omnipresent, they call it. <laughs> How would you end up in prison with that type of person? My mom had six kids mm. at a young age, and we were all like six kids in seven years. And it was a different era. So back then, in the 60s and the 70s, raising kids is a cultural issues that were going on. 
So we were in the middle of civil rights. We were in the middle of black power movements. We were in the middle of Pro. We were in the middle of should black people be people. Mm. I literally thought about this on the way over on the plane. What era did you grow up in? Right. Mm. Did you, my father, think about this. People don't look at me. I'm, this is 2021. Life is great. I am literally the first generation in my father's side of the family that was born in a hospital. Wow. They don't even get that. Mm. My father was not allowed to be born in a hospital because he was black. My grandfather definitely wasn't allowed to be born in a hospital. And just keep, I am the first generation in my father's history to be born in a hospital. Right. So this old, we're in a better space and place, I I agree, but there's a lot of trauma and that's still happening. Right. So what is it like for you and all your siblings to be born inside of the house because you were black? Not because you wanted to. You had no option to. Mm-hmm. So my son is the first generation of, like, movement. Like, you can just go where you want. When I was a kid, you couldn't just go where you wanted. In Boston, there were lines that you couldn't cross, neighborhoods you couldn't go to because you were black. Is that where you're from originally? Born and raised in Boston. Okay. Now I can Boston accent. <laughs> I travel a lot. You know what I'm saying? My, listen, my ex-wife is from New York. She would tell you every time I say a Boston word because she's from New York. Okay. <laughs> but the thing is, I grew up in the house with my mom. Dad wasn't in the house. And... Trying to raise six kids, three jobs. My mom worked hard, and it's just a lot. It's a lot. And she couldn't cover us all. Mm-hmm. So I was the one who just fell through the cracks. Not fell through the cracks, but it, it was just tough. And right. she couldn't cover everything. And then here comes the streets, and here comes the, the cool stuff, and here comes the girls, and here comes the other stuff. And people with, people with money, kids are doing drugs. People with money. Kids aren't going to class. So it wasn't a money thing. It was just a time thing. And then being a kid itself. My, my son, his mom has a PhD from MIT, master's from Harvard. Dad's international speaker, world-renowned crisis manager. My son has cut a class or two. Mm. But the difference is, in a public school setting versus a private school setting where my son is, the results are catastrophic. Right. They can be life or death. So I lived in a situation where she's trying her best and there wasn't podcasting. There wasn't counseling. There wasn't mm-hmm. third-party mm-hmm. billing for mental health care. There wasn't after-school programs. Telehealth. The boys, the, boy, the boys club said, if you can't pay us 10 bucks, you can't get in. There was no sponsorships. There were no um, um, violence interrupter programs. or the, the city care, the police department wasn't doing community policing in the 70s. So there was nothing there for support. Right now, if your kid is going away, there's counselors, there's therapists, there's a lot of avenues you can go to support, minimally to YouTube. Yeah. Here's some positivity you can see. If you grew up in a negative environment, being your city, not just your household, that's all you see. Now, with the advent of the phone and all this other stuff, you can see positivity. You can see a way out. You can see beyond your current horizon. Mm. We saw the end of the street. So now... There are supports that didn't exist when I was a kid. Yeah. So when I got off track, all my mother could do was measure me by my report card. When my report card came out, that was an indicator how good or bad I was doing. Right. So four times a year, if we brought it home. Right. <laughs> we used to conspire. We didn't tell mom. We used to conspire, man, not to bring the report cards home. Yeah. 
Because she's yeah. so busy doing it. She don't know me, poor card. That is, so all three of us yeah. messed up. We could be like, yo, we ain't bringing the cards home. You better not bring your card in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, she just was overwhelmed and um, under-supported. And you got a rambunctious boy who just who's just inquisitive. Who's going to go. Mm. And I'm on the go. So trying to keep up with me is like, she used to tell me, if you can take 10% of your energy and turn it to something positive, you turn this world upside down, boy. Mm. I just didn't understand it. She right. taught me everything she could teach me. But the one thing she couldn't teach me was to be a man. So when did you learn that? When did that click in for you? It clicked in. I'm sitting in solitary confinement in state prison. I got a hundred, I got too much time to count. And I'm like this big-time gang member or whatever you want to call it. And she came to see me in solitary confinement where I just got a new case. And she looked at me. She said, where's the boy that played the trumpet? Where's the boy, I'm saying, he used to come to choir practice and listen to us sing. Where's the boy who loved to travel? Where's the boy, where's the boy, where's my foreign exchange student? I was my high school's first ever foreign exchange student. She came at me. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm talking to her like, yo, this is the life. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm hustling. I'm raising up in the status. I got status. I'm holding mm. it down. And mm. I'm known on five yards. And she looked at me. She cried and she walked out. Because mm. mm. at that moment, she realized I was gone. The right. system had got me. Yeah. She has a saying, up until six, the kids belong to us. Past six, the world starts touching them. You have to engage with the world. Zero to six, you're all moms. But six plus, <laughs> here comes kidney God and the rest of the world. And it was after that that I realized I had a problem. Mm. Because I'm thinking I'm winning. I had convinced mental health, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a locked cell 24 hours a day. Sometimes they don't feed me. We're fighting against the police. We're locked in a cell 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no sunlight. And I think I'm winning. You could not can tell me I wasn't on top of it. I was LeBron James. I'm like, I'm in yeah, here. I'm of, of doing jail. it. I'm doing it. And I was yeah. the king of nowhere. But but how many other people have that same thought process in there with you? Every, most people in prison are trying to be the kings of prison. Most people in the street hustling are trying to be the kings of the block. Mm-hmm. And you're the biggest dope boy in your neighborhood. You think you're winning. Right. You're the biggest gang member in your neighborhood. You think you're winning. You're the biggest credit card scam in your neighborhood. You think you're winning. You're the biggest gang leader in the prison. You think you're winning. Mm-hmm. We've taken what's abnormal and made it normal. Made normal. Normalize and now our trauma. we're trying to be the head of abnormal. So we want it, to be the kings of abnormal. So is it like a sense of trying to feel powerful? It, I want to be powerful regardless of where you put me. Right. That's so what it, I'm saying. It, it wasn't that I want to be powerful in this space. But if this is the space I'm in, then so be it. That's what I mean. Yes. Yes. It wasn't like, I need to go here to feel powerful. It's wherever you place me, mm-hmm. I'm going to do my best to be the boss. That's just innate that's inside exactly of me. What I, that's so, exactly what I meant. So the space yeah. I'm in now, I have the same, I, I'm not a different person. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got out of jail. I've been out of jail 22 years. I'm not a different person. I've done a lot of bad things that hurt a lot of people. But I've changed the way I make decisions. I haven't changed who I am. Mm. So if you run up on me right now tomorrow, Drake, give me your wallet. I'm not dialing 911. We going for it right here. Mm. Me and you right now, let's act like you want it. Right. Dre, mm-hmm. you, you're rich. You should call the police. You can sue. I ain't suing nobody. We work at the prison. And we told them we come in. We don't write reports. 
Don't ever ask me to write a report against an inmate or against a staff. Not happening. My name can't be on a report saying, well, this person should be punished. No, no, no. Y'all do that. We're here to counsel. We're here to mentor. We're here to influence because it, it just goes against where I was raised. Mm. I can be helpful to a line. So you have to understand that there are lines when you employ former felons to come work for you. There's lines when you bring people from the inner city to come work for you. Not saying we can't transcend, but there's just some things that just rub us the wrong way. What is, what's the environment been like from the time that you were in to now that you're going in in a different way? When I went to jail in the, mid, in the early 80s, it was a completely different world. In a sense of throughout the 70s, there was a lot of um, black exploitation. The court system was predominantly an all-white judge, all-white jury, all-white DA, all-white police. That was the norm in many cities. Mm. Needless to say, a lot of people didn't get fair shakes when they went to court. It was a good old boys network, and you was on the wrong side of the line. So when you came in, you was at the behest of the people in charge of the courthouse. They did whatever they wanted to do. The clerks, the bailiffs, the stenographer, the, everybody's on the same team. Mm-hmm. So if somebody had a thing against you, we need this one. They're gonna, you're going down. And during the 70s with the Demile Miles, the Black Panthers, the Nation of Islam, and the Black Power Movement, as John, I mean, Hoover said, this is a problem. So it was a national problem if you try to lead a black movement. So it was just, it was forces or oppression against trying to be black and powerful and lead people. Mm. So the court system reflected that. Okay, we have to stop this movement. We have to stop this mindset, and we're going to do it through incarceration. Because they weren't, like, really shooting and killing us in the street as if, the, as like right now. Back then, it was just lock them up was the, was the mindset. So prison, 1980, what do you have? You have Vietnam veterans who came home in 68, 69, 70, who were committing crimes, come home heroin addicted or whatever the problem was, ended up in prison. So when I got to prison, a third of the prison is Vietnam vets. Wow. Hmm. Them dudes ain't playing games. Hmm. They ain't scared to die. They didn't stack their friends up. They didn't duck firefights. You're dealing with a whole cohort of person who's been beyond traumatized, mm-hmm. beyond victimized, and now they're institutionalized. So you got a grown man veteran of war, four or five tours, trained to kill, train to kill, watch people die. Mm-hmm. When they say to you, listen, youngin, these are the rules. Guess what? Those are the rules. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they stood on them. They had ethics. They had, they had morality. They had systems. They had respect. They had a chain of command. So we came under them. So we were taught how to do time by people who were war veterans. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to the 90s, war veterans, they're all old now. Mm-hmm. You came into jail in the 70s. By 1990, you 20 years in. You old. You old timer. Now you got the young gang guys coming in. Mm-hmm. Crack era, organizational era, I'm not going to name any names, but they're all coming to jail, and they're coming to jail with a different mindset. Where when we were coming up in the street, somebody taught you how to commit crime. You didn't just walk out the house and I'm a criminal. Somebody taught me you were a pickpocket. Somebody taught you. You were a pimp. Somebody taught you. You were a drug dealer. Somebody taught you. Heroin was different than coke. Somebody taught you. I was a stick-up kid. So I can tell you exactly who taught me how to do stick-ups. And they walked me through and took me on like an understudy thing. So now when crack comes out in the late 80s and the late ni- early 90s, anybody can sell crack. Didn't need any training. Just step outside, hold a rock, and they'll buy it. So you had people who weren't trained 
So you was more organized, organized crime versus. It wasn't organized or, tri- crime. It was trained. Trained crime. Trained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you were taught. Yeah. I literally there was a procedure to do a stick up. It wasn't just running a gun and say, "Give me your money." There's a there was a way things were done. With crack, there was no way. Just have the crack and then come. So you had a different caliber of criminal now who hadn't been tested, who hadn't... Every arrest came with an ass whipping when I was a kid. They just came with it. You got arrested, you were going to get beat. Sometimes they just beat you and let you go. Wow. That was just part of this. Nobody complained. Nobody, there was nobody to report to. You just, that was like, you was a, it was a come up. You got a beat and got dropped off. Wow. So cool. now, the, the crack era, you had kids who had no business being in the street, never been taught to be in the street, in the street. When they started going to court, going to jail, no conditioning. No training. I was prepared to be in prison, unfortunately. And when I got there, I did well as and far as adapting. How were you prepared? When, you, when you're a kid in principal's office, mm-hmm. juvenile, juvenile probation, juvenile lockup, county jail, police stations getting you beat, you beat down. And by the time you got there, I can stop back being, being on punishment. <laughs> My mother used to put me on punishment. Yeah, your nervous system is conditioned to be yeah. able to handle Versus that. you're 16, never really been in trouble. Your buddy says, let's go sell some drugs. You come out the house for the first time, right. you catch a crack case. You don't, you've never been on punishment. You never went to juvie. You've never really been in trouble. You, you just doing it to get money. And they weren't really conditioned for what was coming. Mm-hmm. So the difference in prison in the 80s, we had elders who ruled. It made the, the COs respected them. We respected them. When the 90s came around, it just became the youngest came to jail with the mindset of we don't have a structure. And they instituted the no structure. I mean, when I first came to jail, there was a concept of fair ones. What's it called? A fair one. If you had a beef with somebody, you shoot a fair one. Mm. Shoot around. You mean you go fight. Mm-hmm. What, but now you're talking about Vietnam veterans shooting a fair one with you. You got grown men who are professional boxers shooting fair ones. These young dudes are used to shooting guns, not shooting their hands. Hmm. After a while, they instituted a rule, no fair ones. Fair ones is out. We can't win fair ones. So they changed the rules. You can jump a dude eight deep. That was against the rules when I came to jail. Eight dudes couldn't beat that one guy. Hmm. It was just against the rules. Rules changed. Every every the rules changed. One good, one good thing the young dudes ushered in, no more raping. The old dudes, raping was cool. Young dudes, when we came in, that wasn't our thing. So the, the the gang era like almost abolished that in a lot of places because it wasn't their thing. So you had rules within the rules. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there was a time where, I mean, when they came in, that's one thing I get them credit for. They wiped out a lot of that sexual assault stuff. Mm. I'm saying they don't get credit for that or shout out. Because it wasn't, they're in the hustling, they're in the girls, they're in the gang banging or whatever. They weren't in the raping each other. So when they came to jail, that was a no-no. And it was a great thing. It just carried on in a lot of places. So when you saw all of these things and you, you've seen the transition from one generation to the next, what's your vision for this next generation of how it should be on the inside? The, the difference, what it should be now is let's understand. In the 70s and the 80s, it was this place to put people that you didn't want to contend with. In the 90s and the 2000s and beyond, it was a place to put people to make money. How do Got we... It derail this next generation? Mm. How do we derail this group of people? We incarcerate. So mass incarceration came out like 95. They signed this law. 
they built a gazillion prisons and they had to fill them. And who did they fill them with? They filled them with the us. Black people. Yeah, yeah, they filled them with us all day. So that was the the move. Okay. And then I think when Hillary Clinton ran for president, Bill Clinton came out, former president, said, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was gonna wipe out a whole generation of people. Oh, I'm sorry. Oops. I'm not gonna let none of y'all out, but oops. <laughs> right. <laughs> Vote for my wife, but oops. Mm. Nah, you can't. Dude, you got you got people in prison right now. That's Based on law, it's still in there. Mm. Weed is now legal. How many brothers in jail doing weed bids? Right. They ain't said, well, we found a way to take your business and make it our business, but we're not going to let you out because we legalized it. Now. That's crazy. No, I that, thought they were doing that in some places, letting them out. No places you know of that's doing I, that? Collectively, somebody needs to say, we locked this entire generation up for selling weed because it was a horrible thing. It was, a, it was just abomination on society. Now, we're going to sell weed as a U.S. government, and it's okay. Yeah. Let's go back and say, okay, if you own, now if you had a pistol-whipping case, you had a kidnapping case, but for all the weed charges, weed only should be eliminated. Now, if you had a robbery case or you had a gun case, handle that. But all the weed charges prior to the new law should just be wiped out. Do you hear, do you, do you, what's the, what's the word inside where people knowing that this happening on the outside and knowing what they're in jail for? Is it a sense of anger? It's a sense of distrust of the com- of the country. Well, you didn't have it in the beginning with, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> it just reinforces that I don't trust this country. Right. It reinforces that we don't matter. It reinforces that there's a two-tier system. It reinforces that I'll never get a break here. That if, if it's good for you, cool. If it's good for me, no. And it doesn't have to be like that. So to sit in jail and, and you watch people, I had a brother the other day send me a whole list of cases of people who have been charged and sentenced in comparison to a white counterpart for the same exact crime. Yeah. And it's historical fact that if you're black, your crime, your sentence is going to be two, three times greater. Mm. I, mean, I mean, there's always the one-off. I'm not going to do the one-off like this one case, which is what often done. Across the board, crack laws were created for black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Period. Because war on drugs was created for us. War on drugs was, yeah, but crack laws came after Nixon. The war on drugs was Nixon. Mm-hmm. That was how do we get black people off the street. Mass incarceration tied into crack laws. Mm-hmm. There was no mass incarceration in the 70s. That was just population control. How do we just manage this? And how do we have justification to kick in your door to see if you're working against the country? Are you, are you a communist? So the, the war on drugs was more like war on communism, and they called us communists. Now, the crack laws was like, how do we get rid of these people? How do we get them off the street and disenfranchise them completely? Mm-hmm. Like you have in some states, if I steal a car and go to jail for two months or six months, I can never vote again. What does voting and stealing a car have to do with each other? Right. Nothing. Except for, we don't want you to participate in this electoral process. Because the way they wrote the laws when they first were created, nobody envisioned women voting, poor whites voting. Latinos voting, Asians voting, and definitely not black men. Mm. So the one man, one vote is a problem as the country becomes majority minority. You're going to hit a point where Texas goes blue. If Texas goes blue, there'll probably be another, never be another Republican governor, I mean president. Mm. Electoral votes won't allow it. You have to win Texas mm-hmm. to win the White House if you're a Republican. You have to win New York. Right. If you're a Democrat, right. in certain states you have to win. 
And there's always the swing states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida's a toss-up. Um, Pennsylvania, all, all those little swing states. And there's some that just red, blue. Mm-hmm. There's some swing states as they go towards red and blue that if you're on one side, it's a problem. The other side, it's not. Mm. So I wanted to go back to the crack issue. So ultimately, who does the crack come from? Crack comes from a few places on the planet. There's a few places on the planet where crack or heroin, I mean, excuse me, cocaine is grown. Mm-hmm. Cocaine is a plant. Mm-hmm. There's a Columbia, few, right? There's okay. a, I don't want to blame mm-hmm. any country. <laughs> there's a few places on the planet where cocaine is grown as a leaf and it's converted into paste and it's converted into what we know as cocaine. Mm-hmm. Then it's converted at, again into crack. There's no secret where those places are. Mm-hmm. There's a few places on the planet where heroin is grown. It comes up as a poppy, they pluck it and they do it and they boom. There's a few places in this country where cotton is grown. You don't have cotton grown in Massachusetts. No right. cotton grows in New Jersey, New York. We know exactly where cotton is grown. So my point is crack is coming from... Outside of the country. A different culture. No, no, it's not a cultural thing. It's a, it's a physical thing. It comes from outside the country. Yeah, but I'm saying that crack comes into our communities. So we have a two-edged sword. It's brought into our communities to... Uh, people are addicted from it, and then they build the prison system and say, you're not supposed to be selling it, so we got you both ways. We got you addicted to it, and now we're going to prosecute you for having it, but we're going to allow it into your community. I will take crack in the hood if you fix our schools. What do you mean by that, if you fix Bring all the crack you want to the hood or to my neighborhood if I have great schools. Because if I have great schools, crack's a non-issue. Majority of our kids. Because you're not hopeless. You have vision. You have purpose. You have destination. You have goals. When you have a school system that is so horrible, horrible, that nobody's learning, nobody's educating, nobody's growing, there's no vision, it's all despair, it's all madness, then crack becomes reality. Selling crack becomes an option. But why are people using the crack? They just, drugs are escape from their reality. Exactly. And the reality they're in is hopeless. Why are they hopeless? Because the educational system is not giving them hope. My son is 16. He has a future that he can see, not just I can see. It's not me and his mom home praying that he has, he makes it. Mm-hmm. He himself, from inception, can see his destination. He clearly knows where he's going. It's not, a, it's not a guessing game. He sees his purpose and his value and his goal and his path. Through you and his mom. Yes. We, we brought right. that to him between us. And he went to private school. My son has never stepped foot in a public school. Never stepped foot in a public school. It didn't work for me. I don't, I don't me. think it's the schools, though. Yeah, that's what I, a, my a point. Our current public school system mm-hmm. and what they're teaching doesn't work. What is right. a common denominator with everybody in, in prison? We all went to public school. Well, the one common denominator is they're all traumatized. Right. But that that too. Right. I, I went to a public school and um it was more of the trauma that that affected me than the school. Unregulated well, people in a school, don't matter what school you go to, if you unregulated, dysregulated, you're gonna you know. But what I'm saying is Because what prison, about the kids in the best schools? They're well, doing drugs. 
again, when the kid in the best school does drugs and gets off track, when he's done spinning out, she's done spinning out, and they shake it off and they come out of rehab, guess what they have? A great education going on with their life. That's part of the system, though, allowing them to shake it off no, and no. go on with their lives instead of imprisoning them. No, no. Aside, even if they go to prison, mm-hmm. even if they go to prison for whatever amount of time, when they finish, they have the ability to regroup and go. But if all you have is a third grade education and a third grade reading level, when you finally shake yours off, you're stuck. I haven't found people to shake it off, though. I work with students in the school system that failed the third grade three times because one of them was caught in a drug raid and they right. were traumatized. Trauma is real. I'm not, and trauma is real. But what I'm saying is if we can build our schools to service our kids, all their needs, emotionally, mentally, and educationally. That's the one place the kids spend more time than with their parents. You're in school for eight hours a day. You get home at four o'clock. Yeah, if your mom gets home at six o'clock. You're mm-hmm. with your mom two and a half hours before it's bedtime. Right. You're with your teacher eight hours. Yeah, I think I think it was a. When you say school, we have to have your vision of what right. school. Okay, you know, we and, need. And to, so and, when you said the emotional component and all. All the things that we should have learned. We should have yes. learned. In on school, top of then I was in a dummy class. When they figured out I couldn't read, they just stuck me in the room and closed the door. Yeah. It was no problem. That's true. He can't read, close the door. Doesn't happen in private school. Doesn't happen in, in, in mm-hmm. suburban schools. They're gonna find a way to get through to that kid. Uneducated people live in four square blocks. And those four square blocks become their reality. Educated people become global. There's no place that they can't go. Mm. And mm-hmm. if we educate our kids, I don't want crack at all. I don't want any of that stuff. But if you educate us, it'll, the, the majority of people who think that's an option, my son doesn't think drug deal is an option. Yeah. You know why? Because he, he's, he's seen other options. And exactly. that's what educating does. It allows you to see something, right. see yourself doing something that you would probably knew, never do before. I mean, I'm sure going to all those countries changed your whole perspective of everything. So in, in talking about those countries, too. What did any of them have a a model or had things in their jail systems that you felt like we need to do it like that? No, none of them. The the difference in I just take Sweden. In Sweden, they lock up Swedish people, so you have white people locking up white people. Mm-hmm. In Germany, they lock up Germans. Where's well, a predominantly white country, so the white people locking up white people. When you go to these countries. All these different countries, it's their people locking up their... There's no distinction between a Swede. There's no distinction between another somebody from, from Norway. There's no distinction. It's like, you're my brethren. In this country, we it like was white, white people black. locking up black people. Yeah. There's right. a distinction. So all the Canada is Canadians. They see themselves as Canadians. We have this two... We have the divided country in a sense of we've never healed from the past traumas of this country mm-hmm. and the things that we've been through. I've always argued that slavery, as much as I didn't like it, it's happened 10, 30 times before black folks got enslaved. I always had a problem with the treatment of the slaves, the trauma, the brutality, the, mm-hmm. the viciousness. That wasn't necessary to the extreme that it went to. The raping, the killing, the hanging, the torture, the, that is, that's the part that, to me, is far beyond explanation. There's been slavery in the world thousand years before black folks showed up in America. Mm-hmm. But the treatment that the black folks suffered, to me, is inexcusable. Right. 
I can understand slavery. I can't understand the treatment that you did to the black American slave. Right. That's where the trauma comes from. Yeah, for sure. And we've just been passing it down from generation to generation, a charged, charged up system. Um, but back to your vision of how you see things. I think education makes everything equal. Right. And, and and what are your what is your education? What's your curriculum that thing? That's the foundation. The education that I believe children, not just black children need. I told you in the beginning, I help people. Mm. I'm black all day. And I'm always gonna be pro black, take it to the grave. You know what I'm saying? My mom teaches me that taught me that. People need therapy. Mm. For whatever they've been through. Good, bad, and different. People need educational systems that actually connect to them. And we need to be taught technology because that's where the world is going. Yeah. I mean, real education will create real change. And in the last 50 years of my life, I was one of the kids on a bus in Boston when they threw rocks at us. When they started integrating the schools in Boston, I was one of the kids on a bus. When a federal judge signed the law saying that we should go to school with white kids, and the white kids and white people protested, they threw rocks at our bus. I was one of the kids on that bus that got stoned and niggas thrown at them and names thrown at them. Mm. No federal judge called my house and said, Andre, to make the world a better place, we're going to put you on this bus so you can get rocks thrown at you. No, no district attorney, no mayor, no senator called me and said, Dre, we're about to make the world a better place. Work with us. No. It's just like we got traumatized. We got stoned. We got whatever we got. And I dare to say the system's not any better. Mm. So I went through all that for what? So what are we putting our kids through? And what are we getting on the back end? That is the one thing that we need to look at. You take a city like Philadelphia or New York. This is the one thing people need to see. When I do therapy and I do counseling, I do interventions, the one thing I always run into is people don't understand there's two things. There's helping people, then there's the business of helping people. Mm. Right. Most people don't understand the business of helping people. So I need anybody who's listening to this podcast, go to Google, put in your city name, and put in number of students in your city. Philadelphia has like 250,000 kids. New York probably has like three, 400,000 kids. Boston probably has like 60,000, 100,000 kids. Then after you Google how many kids are in your city, then Google average annual cost per kid. It's going to range about $10,000. You multiply $10,000 times the number of kids in your city, and that's the school budget for, your, for the year for your city. Mm. More, hundreds of millions of dollars are currently being poured into the school system and producing nothing. Right. Well, you can talk about that. Well, you, your school system is more, uh, you was a charter yeah. school, so. Yeah, I, I worked in a charter school, and we did address the social, emotional issues for the children on a regular basis collectively and individually and uh, as far as training the teachers about trauma and what that looks like from a student coming in, like from a weekend, you know, trying to observe their behavior and um, how to provide some supportive type of intervention, uh, making contact with the student, um, establishing a rapport with the student, getting to know what their family life was like. For instance, for example, if a student didn't do their homework, not just saying, well, you didn't do your homework, you're going to fail or get an F or whatever, um, having a conversation about how can I help you get this done? Is there anything that you didn't understand? But just 
providing a number of people in the school system where the students also felt safe with, from the security guard to the uh, the lunchroom aide to the uh, cleaning staff, sometimes the maintenance men or uh, help would pick up a note from a student that was uh, uh, reaching out, may have been a suicidal note or right. something like that, and we uh, made sure we addressed it. And it came from the top, from the principal down, which I had a very good rapport with the principal, where we would uh, have a student in the office and try to get to the uh, heart of what was troubling them that day. And a lot of times it was because they were um, having triggers, being triggered throughout the day. Like, for example, um, a young lady, uh, the teacher uh, who didn't understand what was going on, put her out of class, and she came into the school office, and we talked to her about what was going on that you didn't respond to the teacher. And she said during lunch hour, they were talking about uh, their brothers, and it brought up that my brother was murdered. So at that time in the classroom, when the teacher asked me that question, I had checked out. And so we were able to resolve that situation, take her back to class. And um, so it was a good solution to that problem. But we, we dealt with the children from the, from the emotional standpoint of how can we help you? you. You wouldn't be surprised, but a lot of people would be surprised how much tr- uh, children are being triggered all day long. They may hear um, a siren outside of their classroom, and they get triggered from that because they hear sirens in their classroom all, all uh, in their home from their home, and they get frozen. And so they're not responsive. They're not being insubordinate. They've gone into freeze. Or when someone... Um, goes into fight or flight, and they get agitated or they get irritated, and they start talking really fast. And then, you know, it's, what you looking at me like that for? And before you know it, there's a fight. So that type of education, but not only that, but educating the students, we made sure that we educated as many students as we could about what was happening to them in their brain and in their body when they felt these sensations that they wanted to fight or they wanted to attack or they felt frustrated or they felt irritated and what was going on. And then we will also bring the parents in. And when we sat with a parent at a table, we put the parent at the head of the table to show respect and to say, this is your student. And I made sure I sat next to the parent to say, I'm your support. I work for the school system but I'm the bridge between you and the school, and I'm going to support you and your students. So when you talk about education, we're definitely not just talking about reading, writing, and arithmetic. We're talking about bringing in elements that are going to support and teach the whole child about himself, the staff, teach them, and the teachers. Definitely. I mean— what I'm looking at right now, we can say the school system is publicly funded and the school system is collectively an abysmal failure. There's some kids yes. who make it. 
There's a lot of them, though. The dropout rates in our schools, we don't talk about them anymore. We just accept them. We just accept them. We accept black death. We accept dropout rates. We accept drug dealing as a way of means of coming up. We accept, we've just come to a point of saying we halfway give up, but yes. we're not fully giving up. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, because like I said, I work inside of prisons and I sit with these brothers. I was one of these brothers. We want guidance, direction, and surety. If you can't give me guidance, direction, and surety, I'll make it myself, even if it's the wrong way to do it. So when we go in and we sit with these brothers, 100% responsive. 100% responsive. They're like, okay, show us how to do it. Show us how to do it. What did, what did they show us in the 60s? Try to leave black people will kill you. That's what they showed us in the 60s. What they showed us in the 70s? Try to leave black people will lock you up. That's still there. So my mother and father, my father, when I told my father I wanted to go to Harvard University, he was scared for me. My father grew up in a small town in Virginia. My father grew up in a small town in in Virginia. And when I told him I wanted to go to Harvard, he's like, man, that's crazy talk. Man, that's crazy talk. Stop that. I'm like, what's what's the matter with you? Hmm. He was like, had had my father in 1950 stood up in downtown Petersburg, Virginia, said he was going to Harvard, they'd have hung him. I'd be an ugly little nigga kid. So he's scared. When I started talking about going to Harvard, he's like, he was scared for my safety. Just based on me wanting to go to a prestigious school, he's like, no, 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 stop that. Come get a job in a factory. Come, come, come just get a job. Stop. Mm-hmm. And that's his life experience slash trauma pouring out on me. And now if I was like, followed his advice, I'm moving in fear now. I'm moving in fear. And if I move in fear, people smell fear, and now they're going to run over you. But for the first time, I heard my father scared in that conversation. And it made me understand where he came from more. Mm. So it's how do you get inside and talk to the people? And right now, like I'm in South Carolina. We've been there for two and a half years. I had a meeting with the director, Brian Sterling. He controls 19,000 people behind the walls, and I think like four or 5,000 staff. And he said to me, Andre, this isn't working. What we're getting isn't what we want. How do we make it better? Can you get these people to do and be better? But well, what does that mean, yeah, though? what does that like, mean? Quantify that, like, in quantify. terms of, like, it's what's not working. At the time when I went to South Carolina, there had been a riot. And seven brothers were killed during the riot. 30 mm-hmm. people were wounded. And it was just, it had gotten to the point of, that was the worst right in 25-year history of America. It's not work. Whatever they're doing, it wasn't working. When seven people die, good people die. 30 people wounded. I don't know how many people traumatized from one three-hour event. It's not working. So their, their idea of policing the inmates and their idea was not working. No. It goes back to, like I said, they have a system. That was given to them by the last guy and the last guy and the last guy. We're still using a school system from the 30s. Mm. They got a prison system from the 30s. They got a lot of systems from the 30s. And the 30s is over. The 30s is over. So corrections is run on like this antiquated system from the 30s. Just lock them up, throw away the key, punish them. You spend enough time in prison, you should learn your lesson. Without, and that was their idea of corrections. That's when it, when it was first created, aside from black labor— Put them in jail, let them sit there for 
whatever amount of time, they'll learn their lesson, they'll repent, and they'll come out. So I know what you're doing now, man. You're actually trying to do corrections. <laughs> we're, we're actually doing corrections. You're and actually you, doing corrections. What it was supposed to. I remember Corrective being action. a little kid and driving by on Nevada, the correctional facility yeah. center, and mm-hmm. I saw that name, corrections, and I thought like, oh, that's the jail. They correct people. I'm like, what are they doing behind there to help people to correct? They're Does, really, they're, they're really just re-traumatized. Right, but it's just trauma, more you, trauma in the jail. You have people who work inside the system, who are trying to help people that they don't understand. Are they really, are they, yeah, I mean, are they really trying help. to help? If, if baseline. If whatever, you, if you're just trying, even if you're just trying to keep me safe and secure for 24 hours a day, you ain't helping me be better. But, dude, I mean, from from the ownership standpoint, do they really care about you, whether you're safe or not? It's a toss-up. Something. I mean, it's like, it's the, like, like the purpose of the jail, we it's go the down whole, to the whole purpose of the, purpose, the jail as an owner. It's to punish you. So why do I give a shit about you? The, the, so the, when you say it's not working, it is working. It's, and not when the prison is working. No, You're that, not supposed that, to die in jail. Really? Not unless you have a death sentence. You're not supposed to die in jail. But you, but you You're can not be, supposed to die by being murdered. But, okay, yeah, okay. but you can be beat, raped, and everything else. That used to be culturally acceptable in the 70s, yes. But you, people die in jail, right, from their sentences, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm talking so, about murder. You shouldn't be murdered in jail. Uh, yeah. I guess I haven't watched too many movies, no, man. I, people I get murdered in movies. But, in movies. But when you, okay, but when I'm, you, but, so tell me about the real then. When you were in there, was that happening? Were people getting murdered? Not, not, Because not that was based on the code that you were living in. With no, the, no. The, people, people got assaulted. People no, got murdered, stabbed. Though. People got murdered. But not at, not like what happened that day in South Carolina. So what happened there that day? Do you know? I can't give you specifics. Something happened, beef ensued, and at the end, fight started, and at the end of it all, it was just there were people we lost. So now, so, now, now, so now the white system is saying, "Hey, we've gone hey, too far. black man, I need you to come in and actually help us correct something that we were, really so weren't trying to correct in the first place." Probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we yeah, literally yeah, looking at keep right, keep it So the system is designed to punish. Right. I came home in 99, and I remember when I sat at the table, and they came up with the term reentry. And reentry is when you come home, they're going to help you the last eight, ten months to get ready for reentry. Mm. Because before before 2000, the, the job of corrections was simply to hold you. That's it. You come here for a determined amount of time. We lock you behind this wall. You do your 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we'll let you out. They had no major incentive. They had GED programs. Mm. They had basic counseling. They had basic religious services. But the main premise of prison was to hold you. It wasn't until like 2000 that somebody say, what are you doing with these people while you got them for 10 or 15 years? Because somebody came home after 15 years and probably killed the wrong person or hurt the wrong person. Then that family said, well, what did you do with this man for the 15 years you held him? Then this truth started coming out, well, we've never done anything but hold them. Right. So now they came up with the concept of let's create programming for them while they're there. Now you're in the dilemma of the person that you hired to hold me now is in the charge of trying to teach me. Correctional staff aren't teachers. No. Right. Totally. Police aren't community friends. Right. It's just so you're trying to make the police officer a caseworker, counselor, bad move. Mm-hmm. Trying to turn the correctional officer into a counselor. Bad move. It's not what he is or she is. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, okay, now how do we get programming that the inmates will respond to? 
how do we get programming that the families will respect and think is better for them? Mm-hmm. Now they have. This is where the biggest thing hurdle was for corrections. They had to go outside of themselves to find a solution. They got to outsource the solution. And that's not what policing, corrections, law enforcement doesn't like outsourcing. No. No. They like to keep it inside. Because because then you can hide what's inside. Hide right? or not. You just like control. Yeah. You have way more controls when it's your people. So to outsource to me or outsource to you, you're losing some control. Right. College football, nobody likes to lose control. Pro sport, it's every ecosystem likes to have control. But it seems like they're starting to like you. They've outsourced it you, right? They outsourced so it to they're, me. So they're, they're comfortable with you as an outsource, that you be, you've become the main. It, it took a catastrophic situation mm. to push the scenario. Then when I showed up, I had to meet the demand at the same time, meet the standards. Mm. So it, it wasn't just, oh, one day we think Andre would be great. Let's go get Dre. Oftentimes it takes a crisis to bring yeah. about change. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, the crisis was a heavy crisis to create change. Mm-hmm. So the crisis happened. It gave, and the director, to his credit, said, okay, I'm going to outsource. Because there's always people in his head talking about no, 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 no. Right. Let's double down on punishment. Let's double down on locking them down. Let's double down on, on, on solitary confinement. And man mm-hmm. said, no, we're going to outsource this. It's, it's hilarious, man, that the idea that these traumatized people in here to get them to act the way that we want to, let's create more trauma for them. And then, you know exactly. what? They're going to magically say yes. No. Like, it, 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 it just the Prison ain't built like that. But that, but honestly, that's... Prison not built to... It's not current... It wasn't built to fix people. Right. That's what I'm saying. But I'm, just saying that, I'm just saying that that thinking, that's the foundational thinking of yeah. it. That used to be it. So now... Here again, it's the, the systems are starting to, uh, a lot of these systems that we've, that exist are starting to fall. No, know what happened? The invention of cameras. Mm-hmm. Oh. 24-hour media. Mm. What happened to prison in 1970 might make the newspaper the next day. There's 30,000 news outlets now. There's people putting up videos now. George Floyd's death in 1970 wouldn't have been national news. Mm. The advent of the camera, hmm. the phone, and the internet on top of the pandemic yeah, where the whole world was sitting at home and we watched the same thing. Hmm. We've watched Emmett Till die. We've watched Malcolm X die. We've watched Martin die. We've watched countless black people die. We've watched, you know what I'm saying, countless people die in multitude of ways. On film. We watched Rodney King get beat. Mm-hmm. We all watched Rodney King get beat. Mm-hmm. The world watched it. But it was a different mindset at the time. Maybe he was speeding in his Hyundai. Maybe he was trying to resist police. Maybe, and they all got not guilties. Mm. There's never. It's not like it hasn't happened. Right. Yeah, it the, always existed. But what's happening now is the world can watch, and the world can not just watch and respond. The world can share. Because I just saw, I just saw a meme of in Rikers where it was a bunch of people all huddled up. Because the conditions there aren't well, whatever, and they, and I'm like, I'm seeing that as a meme now. You know, I'm starting to see memes and videos of uh, prison fights and stuff like that just go through social, you oh, know, definitely. go through our pages. So it's a lot different. Same thing with George Floyd. I mean, that was an outrage because, yeah, the news can show it once, but now I take that and 
Gone. We keep sharing that and sharing that and sharing that. It's like, we, we couldn't retweet Rodney King. No. We couldn't retweet it. Right. We watched it when mm-hmm. they showed it to us. When they stopped showing it to us, we stopped seeing it. Yeah. And Malice Green didn't even get any. I, I mean, I'm in, I'm in middle school knowing about Malice Green. You help know about me. Malice Green, right? Help me. Educate Malice Green, he was Rodney King, Detroit, but he, he, he was killed. He was beaten to death. Right? On video? Officers. By the police. On video? I don't remember if they had believe. video at that time, but it was a big thing, you know. No, no video. They, I mean, he died. I don't think it was video. Yeah. Without, without video, it becomes a toss up. And the house always wins the push. Hmm. I play cards at the casino. Yeah. If you're tired, the house wins. Yeah. And if you don't have video, we've had the brother in South Carolina that got shot in the back. Oh, um, what was his name? Um, Aubrey. Uh, yeah, shot in the back. Clearly, running yeah. away from a traffic stop. Not a not a bank heist. I'm saying not a potential robbery. Not a a traffic stop mm. for a tail light or something. Mm. Not guilty. Yeah. So it's progression at a snail's pace. So right now, prisons are saying, okay. We want to see this new model. When I first came home from prison, all street outreach and outreach was being done by nonprofits and other agencies. When I came home, I got like 15 brothers around my way. All the different neighborhoods in Boston got together. I'm saying we came together and we started working and we started going out. And we started talking to our brothers who may or may not have guns, may or may not just have a beef. After the roller skating ring, after the movies, we be there. And we were talking to them in real time. And they knew us from the streets and from the penitentiary. They're like, yo, that's big homie. He ain't here to do me no harm. Mm. I can talk to him. You know what I'm saying? We might not agree. We might not even get his way, but I can talk to him. Mm-hmm. And we started having conversations around how do you de-escalate violence? How do you de-escalate shootings? How do you de-escalate stuff? And we started a movement in 99. And once we started it, other people came in and said, oh, I like that model. And they took it and they ran with it. So now they have this violence interrupter model. That's a Boston thing. Hmm. And I can go back get the newspaper article when the brothers were in the paper, wrote us up for it. But now the whole, it's become, how do we, how do we monetize that? All right. How do we monetize that? It's not about helping people in a lot of instances. It's about the, the business, then is the helping. Yeah. We're into the helping. Mm-hmm. Back ended with the business. A lot of people in the front end business back yeah. in helping. Well, that's mm-hmm. that's like our business model. I mean, we're a business, but I don't feel like a business. You know, this is about me in the beginning. It's about helping me. And yeah. then it's about helping other people. So when I when people come in and like, you know, I'm like, this is my house. I'm my first client. <laughs> yeah, this, I am my first client. Yeah. Right, of course. Yeah, this is my house here. Here are my here are my toys and my people are gonna show you how to use it, right. you know. The um, same thing. This is what worked for me. I was a guy locked up disgruntled, traumatized, out of sorts, not in touch with himself. And these are the things that I did to turn my life around. And brothers are saying, Dre, give me the steps. Give me the steps. So, yeah, talk more about the, the responses of the, you going in and, and doing what you do. What are, what are you know, in terms of, one, them peep, the people who are going to stay in there and then the people who... They're in there, but they're going to get released. And what they've learned from you, like what they've learned, hasn't been just me. First off, Mm -hmm. I'm saying we go in, we have a representation. So I got a young dude named Fever. 
straight dude out the block of Boston, solid dude. He's from the gang era. So the young gang guys, can. T- I wasn't a gang member. Mm. All the things, they call me gang. True talk, I wasn't a gang member. Not in the, not in the context of what is this side. I, I was part of a crew, but we mm. didn't move but like But you were like Bloods and Crips. No, no, no. We weren't doing that. And they, he came you up in there. jumped in and all that. No, no jumped out. in. Yeah. Nah. You got trained on how to be a hustler, and then you got received for your training. Mm. These dudes would come from neighborhoods and sets. He came from that era, and he lived that life to the fullest. So when he goes in, the gang kids look at him, and they can connect. Mm-hmm. I came up in an era of hustling. You know what I'm saying? Well, you, you, there was rules, there was regulations, and I'm a businessman. I'm looking at strategy. I'm looking at concepts. How do you grow this? How do you scale this? Mm-hmm. So if you want to talk business from somebody who's lived a life, I'm your guy. Mm-hmm. I got my brother Dominic Williams, who came up in Boston, had a natural life sentence, did 29 years mm-hmm. on a natural life sentence, overturned it, and came home. And they say, well, how do you know he's official? There's a place called Florence ADX. It is the end of the world. First chief, Betty sent Detroit police. You got the Detroit police, man, trying to get you, bro. Yeah, they had, picture that. They're trying to call me for help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 911 right now. Right. Uh, <laughs> so baseline, he was in Florence ADX for like seven years. That's Shoe Bomber. That's all those folks. And he came out of there after 29 and came home. So he comes into the prison. He's like, listen. I had forever. I had forever. And I overturned it. And you can do the same. And so that that testimony of having 29 years in on a natural life sentence, now being home, owning a home, running a business, traveling the country, being married, like he had forever and he got out. This dude had next to forever. He's out doing great. This dude was just like us out here in these streets. So we bring a representation of people that they can relate to mm-hmm. without a long story. Mm-hmm. I, I don't need to give you a 20-minute story about my life. It's like, yo, what's up? I'm like, nigga, what's good? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> what's good? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. And then we get into the, the demographics and the, who we rock with, who we don't rock with, how we move. You can start talking to me. You're like, yeah, this dude been in the street before. Or he's been in the penitentiary before. And he lived that life. I'm not trying to glorify it. Mm-hmm. Listen. Oh man, I want let's talk about it. I know what you're feeling. I know why you're feeling it. I know the nerves that are jumping off in your brain. I know what it takes to calm you down. Cause I was you 20 years ago. Mm. I had one brother, he's on my unit, super cool dude. He gets into a situation on a unit and um, he he was offended. Dude disrespected him, kind of sorta. He he dude's a hitter. He's like, I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna stab him, I'm gonna hurt him, whatever. I was like, yeah, you're right. He did disrespect you. But before you do that, come with me real quick. He says, okay. I didn't tell him he couldn't do it. I said, yeah, hold up for a second. He ain't going nowhere. We walked into the office. I picked up the phone. I said, yeah, hold on one second. I said, here's your mom. Hand him the phone. I said, tell your mother you're about to kill somebody and stay in there for another 30 years. Tell your mother that you're not coming home and you ain't going to see little brother for another 30 years. He's like, he holding the phone and looking at me like, you just did this to me. <laughs> He's looking at me like, you just did this to me. I'm like, go ahead, tell your mother. He's like, mom's like, yo, what's up? What's the matter? And he's like, nothing. I said, no, no, tell your mother that one of your one of your brothers, not even an op, one of your brothers did this and you about to go do this thing. And he couldn't do it. And it turned into, yeah, mom, when you coming to see me and thanks for the last letter and all that type of stuff. Well, you, inter- you honestly, too, you, you, I'm sure you noticed. 
the mom was the safety. So it was able to help him get back into safety, too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the baseline is I could have talked him off the ledge. Mm-hmm. Mom, Mom's voice changed the whole dynamics. Yeah. So many people want to be the savior. So many people want to be the hero, the Superman. Nah, I could have talked him off the ledge. Put him in context of where he came from. Mm-hmm. Put him in context to his higher power. Put him in context of the people that matter to him. And she redirected the whole thing. And guess what she's going to do? She's going to follow that up. Right. Every time she talks to him, that conversation is going to come right. up again. And she's going to do the long-term monitoring because I'm not the long-term guy. I'm the crisis guy. Mm. So that's what it is. It's like how do you get people plugged into the right source? And everybody can't be Superman. Stop it. Right. So when I'm in there, it's real time. What works in real time? You know what I'm saying? How do you, I mean, just us being a, a regular prison counselor wouldn't have done that. Because you know something? He wouldn't have known the mother. We leave the prison. We go, I go, I took his mother to coffee probably three months prior. Most of the guys in my program, I go visit their families, grandma, dogs, kids, fam, everybody. Dad's in hospital, I'm pulling up. Yeah. Grandma got COVID, I'm dropping off groceries. Kid's birthday, we're going to Chuck E. Cheese. So, I'm building relationships because right. my goal is to increase your ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Prison is designed to disconnect. My job is to reconnect. And then when time comes, let your family rule over you, speak into you. This isn't about me being the black Moses. Right. I think that's powerful, though. You know, to re- reconnecting because that's 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 true. You are very disconnected and you're very isolated. Definitely. I mean, they separate you from the thing that created you, your mom. Yeah, and they put my you mother had to it. sign papers to come see me. Mm-hmm. Do they and still I, have that pe- plexiglass though? When you is that still like that? Or is it more like table to table? Is it different it's, from it's place n- to now? Place? They they have video visits. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Facetime, Facetime, mom. For some people, it's good. Because mom lives so far away. Mm-hmm. And for some people, it's bad because mom can physically come see me. So it's not one or the other. It's... It depends on the facility. Mm. I don't know which if they have both or if they don't have both. I know South Carolina was doing in-person visits up to COVID. Now, nobody's has visits. For the last 18 months, Yeah, I can understand for the most that. part, nobody in corrections has touched their loved one. Mm. For 18 months, if not going on, March will be two years. No in-person visits for almost two years. Wow. Now, what, Trauma. What about their children? Do they see their children? No in-person visits since COVID. Minus COVID, you can bring your kids up. Mm-hmm. COVID came along, shut it down. Nobody's coming in from the street. If you're not an employee or crisis manager, you ain't walking through that door. Because they're saying if you're sick... I'm letting two, three, four, five hundred people a day into this facility. Somebody's going to have COVID. Right. And if you give it to an inmate, you just wiped out half the prison. Well, I had a situation where actually someone in prison, the student and the father both benefited. The, the father went to jail when the student was four years old. The student now was 16 and was started acting out in school. So I talked to him and I said, you know, what's going on? And he told me that. I'm thinking about my father all day long. I saw a movie about what happens in prison, and I want to know, is he safe or 
is, are these things happening to him? So I brought his mother in who said, boy, you were only four. You don't remember him. And he says, I do. I do remember him. I remember sitting on his lap. Even if it wasn't cognitively, he remembered a presence of a male. So she brings in the father's brother who had also been in prison. And I asked the father's brother, I said, is this a good thing? Is this father going to want to have contact with his son? Is that a good thing for him to have contact with his son? And he said, absolutely. He says, we are so lonely in prison. People don't write us a lot of times. We don't know what's going on. So I had to clear the way of knowing, is this going to be a good connection? Sure enough, he starts writing his dad. His dad is just like elated. Just They made that connection. They got to see one another because that was a few years ago. And the, just his son writing him letters and him writing his son letters back, I saw uh this young man uh, a few years ago walking down the street. And he was like, hey, Miss McCullough. He was just like graduated from high school, no problems, connected with his father, was still connected with his father. And so that's why I asked you about, you know, do the children get to also play a part in sometimes those uh, people that are in prison, they need to to know that their kids are doing okay, will that give them hope also? Two things. When I got to South Carolina and was doing, we were going out interviewing people. That is interviewing top gang leaders, top influencers, top guys in their system. There was one guy they had. He, was, he wasn't a death row prisoner, but he was housed on death row because they couldn't put him anyplace else, whatever the reason. They put him on death row. He didn't have a death sentence. Mm. They had no place else to put him. So they sent me over to go see him. I'm interviewing the guy. And he told me, his whole, the whole interview about him coming to the program wasn't about the program. He said, brother, there was a shooting or stabbing or something at my daughter's school. Saw it on the news. I don't know if my baby's okay. Can you find out for me? The entire 30 minutes we sat with this man, all he wanted to know is can we call somebody to find out if his kids were hurt? That's all he cared about. Mm-hmm. Organization, money, hustle, name, rep, meant nothing. Can you find out if my babies are okay? It was the entire 30-minute conversation. Then we went and found out, came back, and said, yo, your babies are okay. That alone, we clicked. He's like, okay, you cared enough to help me sleep, mm-hmm. d- d- come to peace with myself, because I'm, I'm stressed out right now. Now, all my life choices have put me in a situation where I don't have access to information about my kids. And now there's a crisis. I don't have access to information. I'm, I'm stressed out now. And we were able to lease the stress just by finding out that his kids were safe mm. and relaying that information in real time. The country of the Bahamas brought me in years ago. They have a problem because the Bahamas isn't like America. They don't have limited space. And they, they're locking up all these juveniles and Her Majesty's prisons filling up. It used to be 500, then 1,000. Now they're up to 2,000 people. They were. And they, they see the numbers going up. The numbers are dramatically going up. And they're like, how do we fix this? Well, if you want to fix a problem, you call Andre Norman. I come in. They said, design it. I go around the country. I go around, go to the prison, go to the juvie centers. I go to the neighborhoods. I said, okay, we need this building. It was about five miles from the prison. We're going to design the school this way. 
These are classes. We're, we're throwing out science. We're throwing out religious studies. I, there was like five, four or five cases, I mean, courses. I'm just eliminating. I said, if we lose a scientist, but we save 20 people, I'm cool with that. Your attempt to get one scientist, we're losing 21 people. So let's just, let's just take it for granted. These kids won't be our scientists, but they'll be functional and they'll be great. So we had to go in and change the curriculum. These are my proposals. Then the last thing I came up with was the men in the prison, give me the kids of the men in the prison. And then we're going to go to the prison, and every day we're going to put the dads on the bus. We're going to drive them over to the school. And guess who's going to be the hallway monitor? Dad. Guess who's going to be the, I'm saying, the chaplain, I mean, chaperone, chaperones? Dad. So imagine you're sitting in class like me. You start cutting up in the room, acting a fool. The teacher's like, sit down. Or I, me and you get in a fight. Fight breaks out. You hit the button. You call the office. Who runs down the hallway? School security and the principal and the guidance counselor. Imagine if dad was in that mix. They're doing right. that now. You seen that? You seen this recently? It I did a, that. That was, was like eight was years ago. I designed that for something... the Because it was a school that had a massive brawl recently. And these black dads got together and said, we're going to start coming in and we're going to rotate. It might have been like eight or nine of them. We're going to rotate and we're going to always be here. No, I was going to bring the dads from the prison. Yeah, well, I'm saying yeah, that, yeah. that's that, that, that same concept, my concept, though. Whoever's dad, whoever one of these kids got a dad in prison, we're bringing them in. Yeah. And dad's going to be here and dad's going to take, we're going to design classes for father and sons together. We're going to design family reunification classes for mom can come up and the mom, dad, and kid can sit down together. The school was going to be designed around family. That was the whole premise of the school. That's like, excellent. It's not math, science, and history. It's mm-hmm. what is a kid's lifestyle? What is a kid's life? What is his culture? Mm-hmm. What is his reality? How do you teach based on his reality, not based on what the math standards are? Mm-hmm. And that's what they teach us on based on math standards and English standards that we don't even subscribe to. Right. Right. So it's like how do you get – until you bring in part of the problem – you're not going to get a real solution. The COVID vaccine has what in it? The COVID disease. You're know saying every denomination, every subgroup in America, the police are taught by who? Police. Doctors are taught by doctors. Lawyers are taught by lawyers. Down the line. Who's trying to help the offenders? Who's trying to help the incarcerated? People who aren't incarcerated. We're like on, the only group where you bring in an outside group to try to get us to follow. That makes sense. They're trying to imagine if you brought criminals in to teach police, they wouldn't listen to us. So why do you think it's going to work the other way around? Mm-hmm. Because they're in charge. Well, you should want to listen to me. It's the right thing. This isn't about the right thing. I don't trust you. It's about. It's about. It, it always boils back down to what we're talking about: safety. Yeah, I safety, don't trust you. Safety. You know, and police feel safe learning from police. Right. Doctors feel safe learning from doctors, and on down the line. So. And I, our program isn't so much cutting edge as it is reality-based. Prisoners understand other prisoners That's and what so they go practical. through. Yeah, it's, it's common sense. Yeah, it's common sense. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, and, I, and I, I don't want people to think I'm like, I'm like just like Houdini on the street. This, I, well, I, people I, I, think that about us, though, and it's just for us and what we've been doing, what we've been doing. It's like back to safety from people who look like you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I talk I mean, like you. I listen to hip hop. You know, hey, I'm gonna talk to you about mental health. Oh, now, now I'm ready to hear why? Because I'm not a threat, right? You know, There's not, I'm not trying to figure out your objectives or your agenda. Right. Right. When, when I walk in and my brothers walk in and we sit down, the one thing I have to worry about is when I'm trying to catch up on another case. 
I'm not trying to do some more research on them, whatever. I'm not trying to run off with your girl. I'm not going to disrespect you. I understand the codes and the laws. I've watched people come into jail and talk to prisoners and just completely offend them. and had no idea they did it. Yeah. It was honest. It's a, it's a cultural thing. It's, it's, just, like, it's, it's just completely disrespectful and condescending, not even meaning to. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've misstepped. I'm not perfect. But I'm clued in to say, I messed that one up. Go back, yo, bro. I messed that one up and I own that one. Mm-hmm. Cool, Dre. Versus I'm, I'm in charge. You can't say nothing to me. Nah, I'm not above reproach. Right. Versus you do what we say because we're in charge, which is the basic model of corrections. We're in charge. You're not. Do what we say. And the right. truth, what nobody tells you, 80% of the prison systems are understaffed. So you're supposed to have... 800 guards, you probably got 400, 500. You're supposed to have 50 guards, you probably got 30, 40. So that means you're not getting gym like you're supposed to. You're not getting library access like you're supposed to. You're not getting visits like you There's not people mm. there to move you around. Mm. Nobody wants to work in prison anymore. It used to be a state job was wonderful. State job, state benefits, guaranteed pay. Mm. That was before technology ever kicked in. So now nobody wants to work there. You can go work at IBM or you can go work at Chevron and make the same money. Or work from home. <laughs> or work from home. Or sell, you, it, sell an NFT for $50 million. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm up on NFTs. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so understaffing definitely plays into underservice. You can't provide service if there's nobody there to open the door. Right. So if there's not enough people to open the door, that now we're doing more. What was general population has become a de facto version of lockdown. Mm-hmm. There's not enough staff to open all the doors all the time. When I was in jail, our doors opened at 6, and we stayed out till like 10 o'clock every day. Now, oh, from 6 to, from 6 6 to 10, you're kind of moving to 10 around. 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., your wow. doors unlocked. Minus count time, which was minus stuff. Now, you don't have the staff. So you're just in your cell. A lot of people are just in their cells. Wow. Oh, wow. And throw COVID on. Throw, listen, COVID made it 10 times worse. Understaffing means we don't have the ability to let you out. If we're short-staffed, if enough people call out, the whole prison stays locked down for the day. Mm-hmm. Unheard of when I was in jail. We locked the entire prison down because of short-staffing. Never happened. Not in the 14 years I was in prison, never we were locked down based on understaffing. Happens all the time now. Mm-hmm. So services can't be rendered, programs can't be run, visits can't be had, phone calls can't be made because there's no staff. So what now do they do? They outsource them? <laughs> You got to have staff. And it's a job you can't sell right now. Mm. So what's the solution? The solution is now you need to bring in a different type of staff. Robots. No, no. I'm not, I'm not a robot. <laughs> no, you, you, have to, you have to stop looking Get at... Get back in your cell. Just zapping you. Yeah, right. No, we're not doing that robot. <laughs> now we're at the point of how do we employ who will go in? Former felons will go in. I'll go in. I go in. There are other brothers and sisters like me who are going. So now Correction's looking at Joe Citizen doesn't want to come in here. He wants to go work for work from home. He wants mm. to work online. He wants mm. to do whatever he wants to do, be an Instagram model. I don't know. <laughs> this guy gets our system, connects to, the uni- connects to the universe, understands the ecosystem, and can be effective. But do they trust us? Like, we didn't trust them. Now we're asking them to trust us. And they're having the same problem that we had. They don't trust us like we didn't trust them. But we're almost the only thing they got left. Yeah. 
But how many is, is it of you? There are 700,000 brothers and sisters who come up every year. And by no means... Yeah. 700,000? 700,000 people are released from prison annually. And by no means am I the only one who's doing this type of work, who has this type of passion. Some of them need training, and I had to be trained. Mm -hmm. I don't you think I popped out of the prison like I just knew what I was doing. People trained me. Mm -hmm. And because I grew up under training, I was open to training when I came home in this space. Mm -hmm. People trained me how to do the work that I do. They helped me refine my natural gifts of connectivity and communication and unexplained the terminology that goes along with it and how to enhance it. That's when I talked to you the other day. on the, I talked to you two days ago. Mm -hmm. What did I say to you? I'm on a plane. Yeah. I want to learn. Yeah. I talked to you on Friday. Today's Sunday. My, my niece was like, yo, this is God does my stuff. You got to talk. You got to check him out. I said, just call him. He was like, yo, I'll throw my thing in the trash if it's better. That's how I knew that it wasn't about. I got a program. Yeah, you're trying to you're trying to help these people. My thing was my program's good, mm -hmm. and I told you on the phone if your program's better, I'll trash mine, mm -hmm. and I'll go with yours. I'm not the one in need of services. Right. It's always different when it's your people in need of services versus somebody else's people. Well, these are my people in need of services. So if your program's better, I told you I will use yours and throw mine in the trash. Mm. Whatever gives them best service is the thing, right. and it's that simple. It's really that simple. I got a contract in Ohio to do services. The population is like 90% white. Mm. But they hired me <laughs> to come in here and do this. <laughs> so you know what I did? I found a white guy from Ohio and gave him the contract. I said, dude. they needed people to look like them. They needed someone to look like them. Mm. And he's like, you're going to give me that? I'm like, yeah, you do this because they're going to get better service from you. I'm a, I'm a great speaker. I'm a great story. I'm a great testimony. I'm a great whatever, but I'm not white. Right. And those folks would benefit from seeing a white guy with maybe lesser achievements but greater passion. His passion is not to be matched. Mm -hmm. He he might not have worked at the White House. He might not have worked at Harvard. But it does, you don't have to. It doesn't matter. It's not a competition. Mm -hmm. Who's going to show up that they can trust, that they can believe in, that they can follow? They're going to follow him a lot faster and a lot deeper than they will me. So I took the contract. I could be like, yo, that's my money. <laughs> we can give away the contract. I'm like, yo, dude, you take this. I called the director. I said, I'm sending the guy over. He's going to be the guy that's going to do this. Mm. And I told him, yo, I'm gonna you can have this contract because it's about the people. It's not about the money. Yeah. It's about the people and it's not about the money. And that's that's what really inner wealth is about, being about the people and doing the right thing. Till next time, guys. That we went over. You've been listening to the Inner Wealth Podcast on EYL. Theme song produced by Be Ready for West Coast Creations. I am Razcast, reminding you to take action, be proactive, be congruent, get out of the matrix, get your mind right. We've automated mental health at inception. Join the movement. Inner Wealth Podcast. Inner Wealth Podcast. Inner Wealth Podcast. Get out the matrix and live.